you wrote your thesis on Kant. He believed that lying is always morally wrong, no exceptions. Yes, well, Kant was a lonely, obsessive hermit with zero friends. Sometimes we do things just to be polite. But if you really feel that strongly about it, tell him the truth. Also, I don't care, because it's the middle of the night. This is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. I do? the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Palindrome Hannah Rogers. Hey, Hannah, how's it going? Hey, I can't believe that this day is happening. How long did you work on that? <laughs> Two seconds. It's not that hard. Like, you, you, can, you can do, like, mini can't puns. Like, I have a mug that says, you can't handle this. You know, you know like, like, I can't believe it. You can't like that. I can't stop making these puns. Like, come on. This is why everybody hates English majors. Yeah, and also people who are tuning to the show are like, what is happening? What? What's going on? <laughs> well, okay, well, let's let's explain it a little bit. Um, people who've listened to this show before, actually, if you've never listened to this show before, hello and welcome you know, for joining us. Uh, I am the fact that you picked up this show on an episode about Kant says something interesting about you. But for those who are regular listeners, they know we you and I specifically, we have two other co-hosts who are not here today because they couldn't care less. No, actually, they both they're both working right now. But um, we have between the two of us an ongoing argument between Riverdale being the best show ever on television and you believing the good places the best show ever on television and correctly, being wrong. correctly so correctly <laughs> no, so. no you're, you're you're incorrect functionally entirely provably incorrect and that's what this episode's about how you're incorrect right uh no but actually like what we have just done is basically simulated all of twitter uh <laughs> arguing over dumb stuff people like or don't like yes. uh so the idea of this episode is to Think about why not only do we like or dislike things, but why are we so insistent that our taste has to be shared? And what happens when we have shared taste? It's the classic argument of what's better between Marvel and DC. And if you think it's the other one, you're stupid. Or what's better between... This happens on everything. They, we call them religious arguments in, um, in computer science back when I used to be one of those weird STEM people. But there's a classic argument that goes back for all computer science nerds of what is the correct text editor to use between Emacs and VI. This is a stupid argument. It matters not at all. Use the one that you like best, but people are really, really invested in it for some reason. <laughs> oh, side note, my father has a car like license plate that says Linux, live free or die. Yeah. Okay. Because Linux is, you know, better than Mac OS and, and Windows. and Windows and yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> okay. So why do people have to like exactly what we like or they're stupid? 
That's the that is the the premise of this show. And since neither Katia or Wayne could be here, we got um, we got a guest. <laughs> I'd like to welcome back Danny Anderson, host of the Sectarian Review. Hey, Danny. Hi, Mav. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. And I, I feel I feel a little ganged up on here because I, I believe you were also incorrect in not understanding that Riverdale is the best show on television. Is that correct? Well, I can't speak to that. I've never seen Riverdale, but I do love The Good Place. And, and I think that any argument that says The Good Place is the best show on television, there, there's definitely some evidence for that. There's some backing for that. I think it's it's a tremendous, great show. And actually, I just uh, don't have to plug my own show, but we just did yes. this episode about The Good Place. Um, um, it was kind of a long time coming. We finally got around to it. And uh, yeah, yeah, this I, week's I, episode I, for you. I'm, I am supremely hurt. I was not asked to guest on that. <laughs> so I totally should have asked you. I, I, it's, a, it's a mistake. When we do something on a recap of the fourth season, um, I'll be sure to invite you back on in. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not really offended, but thanks. <laughs> the best part of uh, just to recap Danny's show, the best part of that episode for him is um, I, I guess your two guests for last week for our listeners this week for for us were begging you to do that show for months and it had to wait until you were caught. <laughs> yes, I took forever to finish. I mean. The, I am not a great binge watcher. I I have a really hard time devoting myself to watching something um, all in one sitting. I, I, I know that that's the thing to do now, and I just am not good at it. And it just took me forever to get through the good place. Um, and I, I got behind because of school this semester or this year. And then uh, finally, I got caught up, um, uh, like I said, way too late. I, I had intended to record this in December, and we finally did it in May. It was ridiculous. So, And let's see. So now, obviously, Hannah, this is one of your favorite shows. I will. <laughs> yeah, the good place or this? episode the good place the good okay. place <laughs> because yes yeah i love the good place <laughs> yeah and thanks we we've actually we've done the behind the scenes thing a couple of times which is the fact that despite the way you and i bicker because it makes the show funnier neither of us actually hate the other show no i am i am now caught up i have watched um in the last week i've watched the first 20 episodes of the good place i had only ever seen one before i've watched the first 20 now and we're not gonna this show by the way is not really about the good place we're not going to be spoiling stuff so or we're going to try not to we'll say if we do um so if you haven't seen the show and you want to don't worry about that this is not like our avengers show last week but I don't hate the good place. Wayne doesn't hate the good place. You don't hate Riverdale. No. <laughs> so actually, you know, I think that like there is something interesting in that we have drawn fake ish. Though I do actually think the good place is one of the best shows on television between the good place and shows like Riverdale. Cause this is also something we can talk about as we get into the episode. Riverdale is like a CW teen, like wild, genre campy tv show right and there's nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. uh in my opinion but like the good place is like you know kind of philosophical like it's pretty i mean like for you know a comedy decently like high budget like high concept like has like famous people like uh kristen bell and ted danson in their own right mm -hmm. on it and then to add something from our blog you can read our blog at boxpopcast.com and comment <laughs> on things for future episodes early plug. Uh, again, plug in early <laughs> uh but like when we posted the blog about this episode i also mentioned how a lot of you who are listening probably think no hannah 
you're wrong and also Mav is wrong, Game of Thrones or something high prestige like that is the best show on television. And like Game of Thrones has a budget that dwarfs like every other TV show's budget. And most movies. And <laughs> and it's gotten critically acclaimed and has gotten like a billion Emmy nominations, mm-hmm. rightfully or wrongly. Uh but it's like, you know, a high prestige HBO TV drama. Mm-hmm. Which I really and enjoyed, by the way. I, I I do I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. I am not really. Uh <laughs> But we can talk about that later. Um, but like the the thing, I, like the point I'm trying to make in like talking about the like uh, kind of breakdowns of these shows is that part of like what we think about when we think about taste is like what is prestigious, what is like high art, mm-hmm. what is low art. Like anything on the CW for a long time was seen as trashy, bad television that only like teen girls like. Um, and me, I'm a, and, I'm, you know, I am a 14 year old girl as anybody who's listened to our Riverdale episode will know. <laughs> and like anything on HBO, like basically you could just be guaranteed it's going to get some recognition just because it's on HBO. Mm-hmm. Swearing in uh, boobs. Yes. So, you know, that's, that's something to think about mm-hmm. um, as we think about what it means to have taste and to like even call upon that word. So first question for all three of us, what is taste? Let's start there. Or is that too hard? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to answer the question, I guess. Um, I, I wish I had some prep for that. I, I honestly think it's how you even conceive of how I think the, the answer is going to differ based on how you see yourself in relationship to society mm-hmm. um, I, that you're going to have um, a completely different definition uh, uh, depending on that very basic um, ideological question. So I, I don't know, Hannah, what do you think? I mean, what would, I mean, I, I think it, like it's a variable like term. I mean, it, it means different things to different people and we, you know, mostly like stay on, uh, some sort of like non-philosophical discussion, even though we're pseudo academics. Um, but for those of you who don't understand why I was making, I can't believe it <laughs> puns. Uh, I was referring to Immanuel Kant, who is an 18th century philosopher who did a lot of work on a lot of things, including aesthetics, um, which aesthetics is basically kind of, like a study or some people even think of it as a science of like considering what is good, what is beautiful, what is taste, what is judgment? Mm-hmm. How do we quantify those things? Kant would say taste is the ability to judge an object or a way of presenting it by means of a liking or disliking devoid of all interest. The object of such a liking is called beautiful. I mean, I'm literally quoting from the critique of judgment. Basically taste is having some sort of good judgment. Although like Kant is different than previous philosophers uh, because previous philosophers like were like insistent on like some sort of like empirical, like breakdown, like the factors of an object that you're judging. And then you can figure whether or not it's like good or bad. Mm -hmm. Whereas Kant is more interested in saying, okay, you as a human being have a certain kind of taste everyone has a different kind of taste. Everyone has like their own sense. But whenever you judge something as being good and you like, say you say you look at a flower and you're like, this is a beautiful flower. 
you're making a claim that everybody else is going to find it beautiful. I mean, like whenever I say good place is the best show on television, I'm not doing it because I think only I'm going to like it. I'm recommending it to everyone who will listen to me <laughs> because I think it's a fun show. Conveniently, you have an internet show um, to do that on. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like every, I mean, in this day and age, everyone kind of has like, you know, the opportunity mm-hmm. to have a podcast or a Twitter, or whatever, where they can just say their feelings. So that becomes an interesting theory on, you know, as you said, Kant wrote about the very idea of judgment and judging taste. And I've actually been too busy to do it recently for the last several movies that I've watched, but I tend to write movie reviews on my blog on chrismaverick.com. And one question that I got from a, a good friend of mine was, why do you bother to put star ratings at the, at the bottom of your movie reviews. And my answer is just because it's the way people know that it's a review. That's, that's really what it is. And there's a double-edged sword to that. Um, people take me more seriously when I do it because people want a quantifiable answer to whether something is good or bad. They want a Siskel and Ebert, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, or, you know, four stars or five stars. The, the drawback of it is that People sometimes take my star readings too seriously. Like they'll jump to the bottom and ignore everything I have to say. Um, and they'll just, oh, well, he gave this three stars. And I've had several people complain to me, how come you never give, you know, why didn't you give insert superhero movie here, insert science fiction movie here, five stars? You never do that. You you just hate these kinds of movies. And the answer, that, that's not true. I love these kinds of movies. I've devoted my entire life to, you know, pop culture. That's, that's my career and critiquing it. And because I love them, I just also know that in the completely arbitrary metric that I've worked out for how I want to view things, but that I think is useful to other people. I know that certain things are not five stars. I loved Endgame last week. It's not a five-star movie. People are told, oh, this should win. This is going to win the Oscar for sure. It's not. It just isn't. That's not what we mean when we are quantifying taste, when we are critiquing judgment. We're trying to do an ethereal thing like aesthetics. Wow, there's a lot of school words on this episode. <laughs> we're, 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 so, so define them. When yeah, we're, tra- if yeah, we, we're yeah. trying to take something like taste or aesthetics or beauty or general interest and reduce it to a number or a yes or no. And that's largely both arbitrary and not at the same time. And that makes it interesting. Okay. okay here's my next kind of pivot question. So actually for a long time, I really hated aesthetics. The first thing I read when I started grad school was critique of judgment, which I guess since you heard me read some of the quotes aloud, you're like, Oh God, an entire like 400 page book of that. Why didn't you quit? Um, and I actually was kind of like the worst student ever. Cause I took a romantic aesthetics class. And the first thing I asked is why should we care? about a sex like it's it's really hard to empirically say is this good is this bad is this beautiful whatever like these people were just like wasting their time like writing about taste and whatever right okay so to kind of pivot from that since it's so hard to quantify taste like the reason i had trouble staying a sex in the first place was because i thought okay well you it's really dumb to try and say like i don't know a movie is three stars good. Like, what does that even mean? And mm-hmm. that, that also means different things to different people. 
So like, why bother like reading Kant or someone else like Frederick Schiller, who is another statistician? Why do we like try to like quantify the beautiful? Why do we care why people have tastes? Like, what are they doing? And also, a sec theory is really hard to read, uh, as you can <laughs> tell from whenever I just uh, read out some of the Kant. So like, what? Why? Why is this like a thing? Um, well, I mean, for me, if I'm forced to answer that question, I mean, I think at a a previous era when Kant is writing, for example, there's probably um, a sense of aesthetics as coming to the correct understanding of beauty, right? Um, and so, like, you study this so that you can correctly determine what is um, true and beautiful and good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in the more you know, in, within once we get into modernity, those um, that kind of big cultural assumptions those grand narratives about what is the good and all that thing become more fragmented and subjective. Right. And so we've come to, um, I think accept that people are going to have personal tastes and it doesn't necessarily make them a bad person or an inadequate person. But I will say, um, that I think it's important to think about aesthetics and to think about taste because society does so create hierarchies based on these things, right? Absolutely. And I think understanding the value systems that go into determining, you know, what is considered uh, a good movie, what is considered a bad movie, what is considered good food, what is considered bad food, these things all kind of um, within particular communities, especially with particular um, classes, you might say, um, I think that they actually do matter even if it's in an unconscious way about how society determines who's in the in group and who's in the out group uh, and i think there are like real social implications to um, our understanding of aesthetics and so for me i think there's a value in thinking about why people think one thing or another is beautiful or good or mm-hmm. or whatever tasty whatever <laughs> uh, i mean I that, that would be um, kind of my brief answer to that yeah I, uh, as a footnote because I, I just, I guess, want to give everyone like a reading list for this episode. Uh, if you're interested in how uh, critique of judgment is actually like political in and of itself, Hannah Arendt makes that argument in Lectures on Kant's Political Philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hannah Arendt, uh, if you haven't read her work, is actually pretty legible for a philosopher. So I recommend mm-hmm. that. I mean, and Kant himself, like, even though, you know, we have this idea of enlightenment thinkers as being objective, right? Like some sort of like rationality, like people, you know, even go back to like John Locke and like think about like the liberal individual who has an education, who has a rational mind. And of course that's coded as a he. So there's like an assumption of who that judge, that person making that judgment is, uh, you know, people like Chakravarti Spivak in a critique of post-colonial reason pointed out that Kant is clearly thinking in like Eurocentric terms. Um, and he, he's like, you know, thinking about how, you know, someone like him might be making taste. He's not thinking about people who he views as primitive. And uh, just as another like slight footnote, Kant wrote really racist things. Um, and he like, <laughs> like, like really like he, his like work on race is like part of a uh, what is it? genealogy of really bad thought uh, that he was kind of a foundational member of. Also, Kant's really bad on gender and marriage, and it's just really weird. If you want to check that out on the Metaphysics of Morals, not that you would, but <laughs> here we are. 
Uh, so like, I, I'm saying like, I'm saying that Khan is useful for thinking, but also we can't like not look at him critically as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's coming from a, a particular, you know, class interest. Right. Uh, and, and I think his sort of definitions uh, you know, reflect those things. And you took you mentioned Locke. I mean, Locke, you know, was partially responsible for writing the South Carolina constitution, which was it North Carolina? slavery. <laughs> What's that? Was it North Carolina? I thought he did something in North Carolina, or was it both? I don't know. Uh, oh, I th- I'd always heard South Carolina, but I could be misremembering. But I mean, so right. he's justifying slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's definitely a, sort of a European centric um, viewpoint from which all these um, assertions are made. Um, and also, you know, going just go back to Nav earlier. You were talking about Endgame, and is it a five star movie or a two and a half star movie? Is it going to win an Oscar? I mean, even using the Oscars as a litmus test for quality. I mean, mm-hmm. that is um, bound within a kind of value system Absolutely. of a class, right? And, and I think, you know, one of the, the folks that we'll talk about is Pierre Bourdieu, I'm sure, um, uh, at some point this, sem- or this semester. During this episode. Um, the, uh, the idea that you um, justify, or you kind of develop tastes that help you ascend certain social ladders within your given field is a term he would use. Right. Um, and so, yeah, for the Hollywood, you know, prestige movie, the, the Oscar means something in terms of aesthetics, right. But it doesn't necessarily translate to people outside of that community. So there's those, so the Rotten Tomato score is going to look very different than the final six or eight films that get chosen for best picture. Absolutely. And I think, and that, and that's one of the things I think we should probably talk about a little bit next. The idea of, and again, I'm trying to be, we are a pseudo academic um, show with drinking and swearing. So, um, so to get a little less schooly, but, introduced an important concept we should probably maybe talk about what we mean when we say high high art or high culture high um low culture and uh (laughs) very briefly what cultural hegemony is we should probably explain that because those are things that for the three of us are sort of everyday topics and I think they're terms that are you know this is this is high class versus low class those are terms that are thrown around not hegemony, but high class and low class are certainly thrown around in everyday conversation a lot without real explanation of what it of what it means, other than you just assume things like, well, I don't know, hip hop is low class and classical music is high class, you know, just cause and jazz is high class because we live in 2019. But if you go back to 1920, it was absolutely low class. So other than the fact that one just means old, what do those words even mean? And then how do we classify good place or Riverdale, the best show ever in those terms. Well, also, uh, it's not just old things that are yeah. high culture, high art. Um, they're not at it, all. <laughs> it's, what we, it's what we think. It's what, and this is to go back to people like Kant again, there are people like Kant who think that it's important for like the community to like, or, or like you to imagine the community as recognizing things mm-hmm. as being beautiful. So like every, everyone recognizes the Beatles as being genius, even if that's not necessarily true or everyone recognizes, uh, you know, like movies picked for the Oscars as being high artistic films. Even though, again, not necessarily true. Go back to our Oscars episode and you'll, and you'll hear us talking about that. Uh, low art is of course like seen as like more popular things on our, our genre episode that we Mm -hmm. did. Um, 
I guess a couple months ago, we talked about this a little bit and, uh, you know, someone like Todorov, who's another theorist, theorist would say low art is the genre stuff. And by genre, I mean like mystery romance, like something that has a specific kind of character to it that mm-hmm. falls into a pattern. Like, you know, you expect certain things from a mystery or from a romance novel. So mm-hmm. take something like 50 shades of gray. It's super popular. It is not well-written I think, honestly, most people could objectively say, and once again, I'm enacting a certain kind of pace that we've talked about where I mm-hmm. assume that everyone will agree with me and say that things like, I turn as red as the Communist Manifesto is not great writing. So oh, my hot. God, so hot. Anyway. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so I, I would say that is a, a basic definition of like what is the high art, low art divide, mm-hmm. even though... Would, would both of you agree that Sometimes those things get blended, um, especially. I think they absolutely are. And I think it's it's sort of there's an arbitrariness to the way they're defined to start with. You know, the fact that we only even have two categories, we don't have a middle art, you know, again, to talk about or medium art was is what, what um, Eleanor would say on The Good Place. Right. There's no. But we, we do we do talk about a high and a low as though these are absolutes and that everybody can agree on them. Even though we know that kind of fictional, particularly as progressive thinkers of 2019, you want to be able to say, no, that's not important. You know, we should judge, but we should judge people on their merit as though beauty wasn't a merit. Like you can't like it would be ridiculous for us to say, who are you going to vote for president? I don't know. The hot one. Like that's that's something we're not supposed to do. Right. Like, like we know that that's not supposed to be the way that we judge things. but. It is important. And there's a reason why supermodels become supermodels. And it's not to say that you might in the individual might not have personal tastes of what they find attractive in another human being. But there are sort of culturally defined. Here's what we're looking for when we go for the supermodel look that we have decided as a society is the beautiful. And then if you take that and you say there's a high strata where the cultural, culturally sophisticated people live that have decided that, um, I don't know, name some canonized books that over, t- over time, um, great Gatsby, great Gatsby Pride James, and yeah, Pride and Prejudice, um, anything that Joyce wrote, anything that Faulkner wrote, I hate Faulkner by the way. And I'm, and, I do too. And, but like, but I'm supposed to say that this is high culture that Absalom Absalom is one of the greatest books ever written because I, I hated Absalom Absalom. I wanted to shoot my brains out the entire time I had to read it for, you know, my job. <laughs> but um, but it's it's high art. And then I'm supposed to look at Fifty Shades of Grey or most comic books other than the five that we mentioned on our syllabus episode as low art. I'm supposed to say, well, you know, Batman's not really important, except that then you get people like us who do shows like, you know, our show or Danny's show. And it sort of complicates things because I think the three of us are relatively intelligent. I think our, our, our regular co-hosts are relatively intelligent. And we certainly have education that sort of puts us in, I mean, PhD in, in literature or culture almost by definition makes you a cultural elite in a way. And then we spent, an hour and a half talking about Avengers Endgame last week. So what does that mean? Is Avengers Endgame high art or low art? It's low art because it's art for the people. 
But then that's a weird, arbitrary saying, because if Kant is right and we're supposed to appreciate beauty and aesthetics, we know that. I mean, we can look at the sales figures and say that this is an aesthetic value that a significant portion of people on the planet have apparently appreciated. Um, I if I can. um, I don't I know the term devil's advocate is is out of vogue now. But um, but I have to. uh, It is important for us to consider, though, that, you know, 50 years ago, I don't think any of us would be voicing these opinions about this kind of um, high, the distinction between high and low art. Um, I think we're products um, of a historical time when postmodernism, particularly in art, collapse mm-hmm. those distinctions. Um, and so a lot of you know, post-modern you know, writers in particular um, will just, well, you know, Michael Shabon is, I think, a good example. Wonder Boys. Talking off air about Wonder Boys uh, before we started uh, recording. Um, and so his work, like, is equally adept at referencing people like Faulkner and throwing in yes. fantastic four jokes. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like in the same book and in, in both in Wonder Boys. And so um, that's a, a way in which what is considered quality art is part of its what makes it clever and, and new and interesting is its work in collapsing those mm-hmm. distinctions between high and low. And so I think we're coming out of a period where we, we were all you know, developed in a period uh, in which that is in our mind uh, and as part of this conversation where somebody in the fifth, 1950s or 1960s um, are still like, mm-hmm. that's not even a concept yet. Right. And so like, of course, Faulkner um, is better than, you know, uh, Agatha Christie or something like that. Right. And so E.L. James, be, uh, um, just to keep those two, but yes. Um, but so what I'm saying is even our opinions about this are formed within, um, a certain kind of class consciousness, right? Um, mm-hmm. like we are approaching these questions from a particular perspective, um, that allows us to make these decisions. I'm not saying it's wrong. You know, my show <laughs> culture as well. Right. Um, but I, I do think that it's important to consider that we are also kind of bound up, um, uh, in a particular, uh, class that defines our aesthetic taste. And, and if I can also, I do want, I do think that there is a third category. Um, I, 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 this is my own kind of development as a thinker. It's very influenced by the, the quote unquote New York intellectuals of the, you know, middle part of the 20th century. Um, in fact, my show, Sectarian Review, is a pun on Partisan Review, the, uh, the name of their, one of their main magazines. Um, and so that's a, I don't know if anybody knows that or not, but that's sort of that's a joke. <laughs> Basically, the name of my show. Um, Academia but, is full of jokes that three people get. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's part of the charm, right? And so, um, but Liz, I mean, those guys were all about um, critiquing the middle brow, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, instead of thinking about high and low culture, um, thinking about high brow and low brow, um, Leslie Fiedler has a, about comics a really interesting essay called both ends against the middle or two ends against the middle. I can never remember the actual title. Um, but it's basically a defense of comics as low art. And, and he's not saying they are high art. He's saying there's a value in them being low art because mm-hmm. what they do is um, put class distinction in the foreground. Like, and so where, whereas most um, popular art, like you're sort of in his day, you're thinking about like life magazine crowd sort of, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that tries to ignore class distinctions in society. And so both high art, high art emphasizes that your Faulkner's and that kind of thing, because there is a cultural capital that comes with the ability to appreciate that. Um, but also low art does the same thing. And so he thinks that both high and low work together 
as a kind of accusation against the kind of class unconsciousness of of the middle brow, right? And so I would put something like Fifty Shades of Grey uh, in firmly in the middle brow. Like I think it's something that's sold as pure product, as pure kind of distraction, so that there's um, people don't think about. I mean, it's the opiate of the masses, I suppose, to use a Marxist uh, phrase, right? And so I, I do think there is a third conception of, mm-hmm. um, of of the high and the low. And I think it's the middle brow, which is basically something that is purely, almost purely commercial and therefore lacking in any kind of productive social critique. So can we explore that for a little bit? So I'm trying to think if I take Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, and I should I should clarify here. These kinds of discussions that we're having right now are relatively common in academia what makes it this a little disingenuous right now is i I happen to know that uh danny hannah and i are all relatively on the same side of you know anything can be art it depends on what it yeah not necessarily everybody believes that there are thinkers today i mean danny said people we might not be making this the argument back in the 50s we probably wouldn't but i have colleagues today who would unequivocally say no, Fifty Shades of Grey, there is no artistic value to that whatsoever. I have colleagues who would say there are, there's no artistic value to comic books whatsoever. Obviously, nobody who's going to be on this show. Well, frankly, <laughs> like, our, our jobs, like, as academics rests on some sort of aesthetic judgment, as the professor of my aesthetics class pointed out to me, because we decide whether it's high art or low art, what is worthy of our notice, and we need to know the history of aesthetics to look at how people judged works and how they still judge them, but also like the politics behind those judgments, which we've Mm -hmm. kind of been gesturing toward for the past few minutes. Right. How and why. So if we look at 50 shades, 50 shades, the complaint about it would be, there's no value to this. This is, just shitty, um, salacious material for middle-aged middle America, white women to, you know, masturbate to, which is a purpose. <laughs> um, and I mean, I, I agree, Hannah, it's not, it, it is poorly written and by poorly written, what we mean there is I've, I've got a lot of degrees in English and I've decided that I don't like it. So therefore it's crappy, crappily I, written. I I, like <laughs> to point out that the BDSM community has like taken like objection to how the the relationships are portrayed and Uh also like the i think that just feminists in general have been concerned because it does the same thing that twilight which is the fan fiction of originally did where an abusive man is idealized as a romantic hero also Uh he's a billionaire who is uh to use mark mcgirl's term um an Uh academic He's like the asshole billionaire who's tamed by the virginal woman. Um, and, you know, like a lot but of... that's also the plot to Pamela. Uh, or, yeah, or, yeah, or Jane <laughs> or Like there's a lot of yeah. romance novels, of course. Right. Uh, which is why a lot of people do not like romance novels, but also part of why a lot of people do. And like part of like, there's a distinction here. Like there's the writing, which is bad. And then there's the bit that now we're getting into, uh, which is like mm-hmm. talking about like, if you read the plot and like, what dialogue is and the relationships between the characters, they're really bad. Well, I'm wondering, what I'm wondering is if I take three things, if I take Fifty Shades as my middle brow, to use Danny's term, right? And I guess my low brow version of the same thing is, I don't know, Penthouse Magazine or something, just like actual porn, right? Then what's the highbrow? Is the highbrow uh, things like Pamela? I, I, well, in there? Maybe that, maybe something like House of Holes, which is like a contemporary novel that is like much more serious. Like, I mean, there's like, 
there's like high art erotica, which might actually not be super erotic, but it's like a genre that people who say the contemporary novel and admittedly, I do not specialize in the contemporary novel. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they do have these novels that they look at and that like, you know, maybe like 5%, if that, of people who read She's a Grey have read House of Holes, but House of Holes might be taken more seriously in some places in the academy. It's a sophisticated novel with something to say, you know, or something like that. Yeah, and and of course, if you're the one person here who has read House of Holes and think I'm wrong, I'm really sorry. <laughs> yes. Not me. Danny? I've, I've never even heard of that, actually. <laughs> I guess you're maybe proving my point. I'm not... <laughs> So then politically, as you were saying, so we have we have a term that we use sometimes where we talk about the way, you know, is culture pushed from the bottom up or is it pushed from the top down? And there are varying schools of thought on this. I tend to go with the answer of both. But, you know, this is where uh, this is going to be really fun. How do we define hegemony for the people? (laughs) School word we all use a lot that. Has, that is really hard to explain. <laughs> is that Gramsci? Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Uh, my it is partner. Antonio Gramsci. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, it's. I mean, if I can just, it's me deep, digging deep into my grad school. That's you know, I've now actually after yesterday been out of grad school as long as I was in. Grad school. I saw that post. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. You have to bear with me if my uh, my terms are not with me. Um, but the idea. I mean, I think the basic idea is that hegemony is the sort of like systems of the world, um, power systems of the world that perpetuate themselves by almost influencing the imaginations of everybody so that no one has to enforce any of these rules or class distinctions anymore. They just sort of, we just enact them uh, on our own. It's In some ways, I think it leads to Foucault's ideas of power uh, and the way that power is kind of internalized and we enact power upon ourselves um, and, and in our own bodies. And so I think that my the way I try to explain hegemony when I need to, very rarely in class, <laughs> is the idea. And it's just as a way that the systems of the world uh, perpetuate themselves by setting people up to already believe in them before they get to the point of making change about them, kind of. And so they just sort of Continue. I mean, maybe it's if you read uh, the novel Never Let Me Go. Um, if you haven't, it's a kind of it's a story about clones, and clones are made so that uh, their organs can be harvested. Um, and I guess spoiler alert, but this is like really important. Unlike the Hunger Games or something, where you know there's a revolution and they overthrow the bad government that are harvesting their organs, these clones don't fight back. They are like, they buy into the system and some ways in which they buy into the system is they end up like writing papers on like Victorian novels and like reading them and like being kind of inundated into the culture, which I've always thought is kind of super insane because I think one reason why we're talking about taste and the power of art is because the things we consume shape our ideals of the world, at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Captain Marvel um, is a great movie. I loved it. Um, and, um, and yet it's very wildly pro-military, right? And so, um, that kind of movie, it's very popularity perpetuates ideals about American, you know, colonization or whatever, uh, you know, the, the power of the American empire. Right. And so, um, I think that that's a, a, a cultural institution, like the Marvel film in general, um, is a way that kind of preforms our collective imaginations about, systems of power in the world. Church is another one, right? Um, church is another way in which um, 
in religion in general mm -hmm. is, is a way in which um, the institutions create uh, the actual our attitudes mm -hmm. toward the world um, and therefore perpetuate themselves without any kind of overt power. This is not like 1984 right. sort of power, right? This is more Gra very Gramsci. And again, Antonio Gramsci is the person who came up with the term. I think he came up with the term. He certainly popularizes it. He would argue that there are three forces that cause hegemony to happen. Hegemony roughly being control of culture to shape ideas throughout the uh, control of cultural artifacts to shape ideas throughout the culture to go back to our subcultures um, episode. So you'd have the three things that do that are traditions, institutions, and formations. And hegemony is not the government saying it's illegal for you to do X because that is, you know, if, if I just arrest you or shoot you, if you like the thing that I don't want you to like, or I don't let you vote or I enact actual laws, I don't need hegemony. Hegemony is things that again, traditions, institutions, and formations. So things like churches or social clubs and, you know, th they enact in order to, to install behaviors. And a lot of times people will, when you, when you talk about churches, a lot of times people will get upset because we tend to use hegemony as though it's always a negative word, but it's not like there are lots of really good things that, um, for instance, when you have, you know, churches go and they give Bible lessons and they, and they have sermons where they teach you things like maybe don't murder people, maybe don't hate people, maybe don't steal stuff. I, I believe there's like seven other rules, you know, <laughs> but, but you know, those are ideas that should you go out and murder something, someone, your priest doesn't come after you. That's not his job. You know, what he's trying to do is he's, in, he's trying to instill behavioral norms on you through culture rather than instilling them on you through law. And then the same thing happens for, you know, to take non-churches, um, the institutions like, I don't know, the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, things like that. Um, but also the NRA, you know, or, or the Republicans and the Democrats or to take other artistic formula formations like, you know, why to look at Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel is kind of pro-military. It's also kind of pro-woman. Why does that happen? You know, we always say representation is important. Well, why is representation important? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create the idea in the people that maybe women can be strong enough to be heroes if we kind of give you a movie like Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman where there is a female hero. That is the idea. It works in both directions. Like you have you have low culture creating things um, like people just doing graffiti on the street or hip hop emerges entirely out of a culture of people with no money whatsoever. The reason hip hop doesn't have instruments is that nobody could afford one. Hip hop was massively in, you know, it was revolutionized by the invention of the TR-808 um, drum drum machine, basically, because suddenly you had we called it the beatbox and if you heard human beatboxing that comes from people trying to who couldn't even afford this one little electronic device that made beats to mimic that device with their with their voices but the tr808 essentially is a, a machine a sampling machine that allowed people to have some kind of music in their 
you know, their instrumentless music that is essentially poetry sung to a beat, which is where hip hop comes from. And that's why it becomes so associated with urban culture, black culture, lower class cultures, because it had to be. It was the art they could make. You couldn't, you know, nobody in the hood was was creating a symphony orchestra that takes a certain amount of cultural capital, you know, literal financial capital in order to have, you know, the New York Philharmonic. And those are both like, I mean, that's a perfect example of the low brow. I mean, I think this is um, a form of art that just because we call it low brow doesn't mean it's bad. It means it comes um, out of real material, like mm-hmm. class conditions. Right? Of course, we and chose so, the term low and high to sort of imply some hierarchy that we're actively fighting against, I guess. Yeah, but then, I mean, but my, I guess my framework sees the low as good, right? I, I do buy into the both ends against mm-hmm. the middle thing. I think that, um, they, I think they do work together. And so, yeah, that to me, I, I'm not even using yeah, that oh, as yeah, a slur, yeah, certainly. Um, or, or as, a, as a hierarchy. Yeah. Um, no, I, I totally agree. I, one thing I did want to kind of talk about, um, Bourdieu a little bit. And I think that, um, when, Mav, when you were talking about, church and and i think there's a religious aspect to this and i one thing in his book distinction um from uh, the late 70s or early 80s i think um it's a pretty big sociological book um if you're into sociology you you will probably have read distinction um as any probably in humanities you will in grad school as well but um it's basically the whole thing is looking at the way that um tastes are used um kind of in hegemonic ways to perpetuate kind of class distinctions, mm-hmm. right? And so if, if I'm a, a wealthy person who has the means, um, I'm going to teach my kid to like caviar because the consumption of caviar marks them as someone mm-hmm. of a certain class, right? Um, um, and so there is a way in which that is kind of um, – from I don't know I guess that would be from the bottom up, <laughs> um, maybe the way maybe I'm you could just you can actually correct me if I'm wrong about the way I'm conceiving of the directions here, um, but you had mentioned does it come from the bottom up or the top down, um, and so for me this is something emerging out of um, like real class conditions, but there's also a way in which it almost goes the opposite direction at the same time because because I have all this leisure time um, because of my wealth I can give my kids piano mm-hmm. lessons and they can become really good at, uh, at this high art. Right. And so, um, there's a way in which that is sort of coming from an other direction, um, at the same time. So it isn't like the old, um, was it, who's it? Thorstein Veblen's conspicuous consumption. It's not just that your, um, ability to buy nice things, marks you as a rich person mm-hmm. and therefore that's the end of its function your status as a rich person also enables you to do these um high art yes. things no, right not, to create this kind yeah. of high well, it's, art. Not, it's not just high yeah, like high like super high class like you know the top top one percent like not to it's the middle not not, not, yeah. not to talk about my dissertation but to talk about my dissertation for like one second <laughs> um in my chapter on Jane Austen, which I is is its own kind of weird thing because it's both pop culture and a classic novel um, novelist. Um, I you know I think about how like these like notions of tastes like function politically, and in Jane Austen, like you are not looking at you know the ruling class of England. You're looking mostly at the gentry and the middle class who go around in their circles, and mm-hmm. when. Sir Walter Scott read Emma, the novel. He wrote a review and said that, you know, um, this, like, 
is it like it shows the common walkways or pathways of life or something. Um, basically, like people recognize their everyday life in Jane Austen's work, right? But the thing is, is that that's not true for like a lot of England. <laughs> like, like if you if you're working in the city or you're you know poor in the country, like Emma's life, she's like a super rich heiress, is not your life. But what he's saying is, and what I think Jane Austen understands, and like I think what a lot of culture understands is it's aspirational. Like you recognize some things about Emma that you could go through, like the, you know, oh, I'm a girl and I make bad judgments and it's a mistake because I'm like 16 or whatever. Uh, but you also like see something to aspire to. Like you're supposed to aspire to be like the people in Emma. So Jane Austen's novels are political because they're giving you like a taste that you need to live up to. And like the character mm-hmm. Emma, if you've read the novel, you learn what good and bad judgment is. Like throughout most of the novel, Emma has bad judgment and tries to hook up all these couples. And Mr. Knightley, who of course she ends up marrying because it's a Jane Austen novel, teaches her <laughs> how to measure good taste. Right. So like it's not it's not just the caviar people. It's like what you want to aspire to be. And like I think that works because like everyone in America is convinced that we need to protect like the middle class and like also millionaires because we aspire to be them. Mm-hmm. Right. No one wants. No one's looking to go down. Yeah. It's, it's the you know. There's sort of a, a myth of the middle class. It's and this is going to get real. We're too late in the episode to get like super into like Raymond Williams type <laughs> kind of stuff. But um, but we always this country works on this idea that anyone can work hard and make it to the middle class. And we very much ignore the idea that in order to have a middle, you need to have people below you. We can't, you know, you, you can't raise everybody to the middle class. That is a flaw in capitalism. And, and this is a flaw that literally, you know, both the Democrats and the Republicans ignore the left and the right ignores it. Someone needs to be beneath you or you're not really the middle. You're, you know, we've just reestablished where the lower class is. But and for me, that's the benefit. That's the what's beautiful about what I yeah. call the low brow is that it's there a statement <laughs> about that. About right. That right. So, you know, so there's a, you know, so there's a, a simultaneous attempt to sort of represent your current experience with the low brow, but sort of replicate, you know, sort of, you know, dress for the job that you want, not the job you have, but there's sort of a attempt to, Oh, if I like the finer things that gives me a taste of moving up. It's the aspirational thing. Hannah was just talking about why do people write, read Emma? Same reason they actually watch soap operas, you know, daytime soaps are largely about lives that no one, you know, they're glamorous people who wear million dollar dresses to breakfast for some reason, who have affairs, who have, you know, everyone's a doctor. Yeah, they or an action hero of some sort. It is an absolutely aspirational thing. Why do we watch superhero and movies? To be fair, honestly, most mm-hmm. superhero movies, Harry Potter, Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, may not all have like affairs and like some of that, but like it's all like wealth and people who have money. Mm-hmm. Like, like Harry wakes up, finds out he has a giant vault of gold. Yeah, uh, I'm a I am a near homeless kid living un, under my uncle's stairway, and now I'm one of the now I have the powers of a god, and I'm rich because you know I was born special. So, <laughs> That's, so I sort of have like one final proposition question. Sure. Okay, so. 
part of like what the blog uh, we wrote about is like why people on the internet are like, I hate Game of Thrones and I don't watch it and I need to let you yes. know. So here, here's my like theory about some of this. It, since we've talked about how taste is political, it, it's class in like the economic sense. It might be cultural, gendered, etc. Mm -hmm. I don't unfortunately didn't get to touch on all those topics in specific detail. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason I think people cannot stop asking questions about why you like something is because whether knowingly or not, there is something in the things they don't like or refuse to watch that goes against their sensibilities, and therefore it's political. So like Game of Thrones. I didn't for year I for years I did not watch the show because of the rape. I mean there's mm -hmm. other problematic things to use the word You're talking about like the the rapes like that you're talking about the big rape because like, there's a lot no, of rape. I'm talking oh, about all, all the rape. Just I didn't Okay, yeah. There, there is much rape on that show. I didn't watch <laughs> it because I'm like why, why would I want to watch like sexual violence and trauma again and again and again and also whenever okay. yes. especially whenever it's handled poorly the further you go on in the show, I think. And we don't need to argue about whether or not that's right. True. Right. But, but, but there is much rape in the show. Yes, so, absolutely. So like, you know, when people like, you know, it works the other way too. When people sarcastically uh, were like, why don't you watch this show? Like everyone's watching this show. I was like, why would I watch this show? Like, <laughs> cause like, you know, there's, there's a fundamental disconnect about values or sometimes perhaps we mm. watch things that don't align with what values we have because like everything is, you know, problematic to, use it. But I, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that there is a connection between forming communities based on our shared taste and the politics we hold or don't hold. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting case in point too, because it's also, I mean, I'm a, a religious person and, and it's also like, um, the controversial, on Christian Twitter, <laughs> that's a community. Um, then about Christians who are like all obsessed with Game of Thrones, right? Um, and then there are other people like how like this is so against uh, so many of your deeply held beliefs about, about like propriety. Um, why are you supporting? Uh, why are you consuming a show like this? And so I think that there's also a political end to that too. That it does like violate a lot of like deeply held kind of political beliefs as well. And so why is it so, why does it speak to people who should be offended mm -hmm. by it ostensibly, <laughs> I guess. And I'm sort of ambivalent about it. I've never mm -hmm. really, I've never watched it. I mean, I've read about it and, and kept up with the, the chatter about it, but I've never watched it. Um, and so I, yeah, I find it a fascinating test case to, to consider I, I have no answer to why to my question, but like, why is it that we are drawn to something that we should be sort of? Um, it, it's inconsistent with our other belief systems. And, and here's where here's where I think it's interesting because I have I have sort of two answers to that. I'm going to address Danny's direct question first. Despite what we do, I don't think that hegemony is the only purpose of literature. I don't think that literature exists solely to, and I'm using literature in the broad sense for our listeners. Um, if you're people like us, you consider pretty much anything you, you read or consume as media to be literature. So we're including television shows and movies and music. I look at something, you know, there's always, there's always the question of, you know, why are we putting more women, more minorities, more um, uh, queer people in these Marvel movies. It's because we want to represent things. And yes, that's certainly true. But I don't think that the only purpose of, of literature is to be is to teach That's it. You know, Marvel movies are not the Bible, right? <laughs> Marvel movies are not like they're not 
a, a school text. The the point isn't just to go um, to give you a here's the moral compass that you should be living. That's not why I'm watching Game of Thrones. Everyone on Game of Thrones sucks. Everyone like they're horrible. And, and I'm the one person on the show today who is I'm a huge fan of the show, but they're horrible people. They're um, and part of what I'm doing when I'm watching a Game of Thrones or when I'm watching or reading Fifty Shades of Grey is I'm looking to experience a life that I don't have. Um, if Wayne were on the show today, he, he, he would point out that one of the things, and he's talked before about his favorite superhero when he was a kid being Luke Cage, because for better or worse, he grew up in the middle of nowhere and that gave him an experience to African-Americans that he didn't have. That was literally it. It's, it's the only sense of that, you know, of an other that he had until he was near an adult. So I think there's an aspect of let me experience this other thing. And sometimes that other thing is fantastic and good. But sometimes a lot of times you just want to explore alternate ideologies to your own. If you are a devout Christian, then I think there is something. I mean, I don't know that anybody's taking it this seriously when they're thinking about it, but I think there's something freeing about watching a Game of Thrones or a good place. The people on Good Place, as we talked about, are horrible. The people on Riverdale, a lot of them are horrible. It's just Riverdale is a show about teenagers basically having sex a lot. It, you know, everyone's good looking every, you know, everyone's, you know, violent and solving mysteries and has rock hard abs. Like it is a fantasy that I just want to embody for some people. Uh, why do we play role playing games? You know, why, you know, it certainly, certainly there is nothing in the Bible that says that a Christian cannot play Dungeons and Dragons. And I know many people who would, I, I listened to a podcast by that, that is hosted by a Lutheran minister and it's his Dungeons and Dragons game. So, you know, <laughs> it does happen. I did, I did a show about yeah. that, by the way. Um, it's called Dungeon Masters yeah. and Pastors, right? Yeah. So <laughs> that does exist and it's, and it's fine. On the other hand, so I, so I think that's why we do it to answer Danny's question. But I also think there's a double edge to that sword. I think that there is a part of, and we haven't really gotten into performativity yet, um, and it's getting late in the show, but performativity is the idea of displaying your culture in your actions. And I think there is a certain aspect of performative, particularly with things that are sort of at the top of hegemonies, like say religion or, you know, those formations and institutions that I was talking about before. So there's a performative Christianity. There's a performative feminism. There's a performative blackness in, in America where sometimes you illustrate to other people, Danny, again, you're you're certainly the most devout. I and mean, that's part of the point of your show, Christian Humanist Network. And yet you don't fit the stereotype. But as you mentioned, Christian Twitter, there is a certain amount of people who will say, you know, I am a Christian and therefore I cannot watch this Game of Thrones thing that you're watching because like, <laughs> because, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and he would not allow. You know, Now, again, if you read the Bible, a lot of rape and murder in the Bible. <laughs> whole lot of it. but like yeah. that's the thing it's, I, it's I, a i'm showing you that i am a devout christian by pointing out that i don't watch this garbage television show that you watch i you know i do bible study instead yeah i think i mean there's a, a term that gets i think it's kind of a useless term at this point they, it's virtue signaling you see thrown around but i think performativity as you say is a better term for it. it's someone 
you know, a- enacting a belief system publicly. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's exactly right. And I have to say, I mean, even though I don't, I, I just asked the question about Game of Thrones, for example, I get the same thing thrown at me because I'm into horror films, right? And so one of my little hobbies is to write little sort of theological slants on whatever horror film of the moment, right? And so (laughs) um, so people like like are kind of baffled Mm -hmm. by the way I can – that I I balance that, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of it for me is sort of looking for the – looking at the negative to see the positive, right? Uh, and, and to sort of see the the image of the positive in, in negative form, kind of. And so, um, yeah, I definitely think that I'm not someone to tell someone else that they shouldn't watch something for moral reasons, mm-hmm. right? I think that's for everyone to work out on their own. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah. I don't think it's uh, just moral. I mean, to take Hannah's example, I think it's perfectly okay to not watch Game of Thrones because you don't want to watch rape, which is what Hannah said. But on the other hand, I think there's a, there is a, there's a difference between being Hannah and saying, I just just don't want to see this. It's not what I'm interested in. There's a lot of stuff I'm not interested in and saying, and you'll get this, you know, it's the exact same argument, but non-religiously. I have seen many people say, well, I don't watch Game of Thrones because I'm a feminist. And, you know, if you're watching it, clearly you are. There's you, you probably just shouldn't speak in generalities and imply people are bad people if they don't have the same taste as you. Uh, especially since, Mm -hmm. uh, we all have biases, um, based on how we grew up and some of those biases are really bad, but but there is, you know, something to be said for like having discussion based on like why Mm -hmm. we should or should not watch something, um, which like you don't, I mean, don't be a jerk, but (laughs) we wouldn't, we would not have a show if we didn't debate like, how do we handle, you know, cultural objects that handle rape how do we deal with problematic artists we did a show on that um i mean this uh, Mm -hmm. this entire episode has basically been like what are the politics of what we like and what does that say about us as people Mm -hmm. it says that you're a better person if you watch riverdale than if you're i'm pretty sure the good person is about (laughs) what makes a good person so i think that you will become a better person by watching the good place because you have to reflect on your own value system it's a good show but it's no riverdale Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> and nor should it be. I, I, nor should it be. Wayne specifically like asked me to record that. He, he specifically is like, can I record? Because he knew I was going to be able to. Can I just record that so you could just throw it in? <laughs> I, I don't want to throw a grenade at the end, but there's a question that I've been like torturing over myself yes. for a long time. And, and I think it's related to this, this idea of like taste and its relation to your kind of moral character or ethical character. Um, and, and I feel like there's a conception that if you watch something or read something of value from another culture or whatever, that you build an, an empathetic impulse, right? Mm-hmm. And that you're able to just be a better person in the world by consuming that sure. art. And I'm like, the Nazis read their Goethe, right? <laughs> and, 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 like, and, and also um, the, uh, the, the, I, I, any kind of bullying is pervasive in school, yes. right? Those same kids that are the biggest bullies in school are the ones acting in the school plays that are anti-bully, mm-hmm. right? And there, there, there's a way in which these kind of lessons that we're supposed to learn don't get internalized. Um, and, and I think that's a kind of a haunting question when we think about the moral value of art. And, and I feel like it has something to do with taste. It right? does. But, yeah. Um, I think it, I actually, know. I propose, and by the way, I should say like academics, not necessarily good people. Uh, but, uh, I, mean, I suck and I'm on. <laughs> I, 
I propose that we do a sequel and take up that very question about whether or not uh, arts can teach us moral lessons and what it has to do with this because there, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, from, from Adam Smith's conception of sympathy, which is imagining yourself in the shoes of another person, to like, you know, Dickens wrote things to highlight the struggles of the poor, um, mm-hmm. to like our very own like moment now. Um, so I, I say we reconvene. Yeah, I, definitely. I, I did want to answer one thing about that because I do yeah. think though that there's a there's a weirdness in just again it's the performativity thing, and <laughs> I'm you know as much as I love or as much as I loathe speaking in generalities as we said earlier I'm going to speak on behalf of all black people here. <laughs> um, there is um, as far as performativity goes, there is a thing that happens quite frequently right now. I have noticed that there is no shortage of white people on the internet constantly saying, well, I don't want to watch another show about another white guy. And it's like, I, I, I get what you're trying. I mean, I get why. And I don't think it's disingenuous, but, but the idea that the idea that, um, that you can't, you know, you're looking for something else. It's like, I, you're allowed that's the kind of i am showing you that i am evolved and we've talked before about how i hate the word woke but but you are you are performing your wokeness you are showing that you are culturally evolved beyond the ability beyond the need to have everything be about yourself about someone who looks like you which is great but if you cannot this is my critique of people who, of uh, the people who complain most about Iron Fist. If you don't like Iron Fist just because it's a show about another white dude and you are a white dude, it's got to be deeper than that. <laughs> there are, you know, there are, there are reasons to not like that show. There are reasons to not like anything, and I think that there, I think that's where you sort of, you sort of get towards where where we're just talking about. I, yes, I think that you generate sort of empathy which we should talk about on the next show but i also don't think it's i don't think it's a magic wand and i think that to the extent that we pretend it is that's not you know that's sort of performing taste to get back to this episode to, to this episode's you're point developing your own form of cultural capital yeah. like for the field that you're in mm-hmm. or whatnot and i gotta say christian twitter is another place to find this <laughs> uh the tendency rampant so is black twitter <laughs> Black Twitter has a lot of this. I mean, I think so does academic Twitter. Absolutely. Just said, you know, I'll call out our digital one. Um, Twitter is a garbage heap. Well, you know, we love it. You know, to uh, you know, be a, a to end on the episode of the good place kind of moment. Uh, although we resolve nothing, uh, we what I think we can do is like now that we've talked about taste and like people's theorizations of it and why it matters, we can think about what we consume uh, mm-hmm. and have some tools to think about it more critically and think about how that overlaps with our ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore we can learn to be better people. I'm not going to rap um, about con. <laughs> I'm going to spare us all. <laughs> but, but yeah. Or you could just watch the, you could just watch Riverdale, you know. Uh, Danny, thanks for joining us this week. Oh, a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Um, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I definitely, if you want to do that sequel episode, oh, I was going to like get you on recording saying that you would do it, but now you got it for me. So thank you. <laughs> well, where can, where can people find you in the meantime? Um, yeah, on Twitter, um, 
Christian or otherwise, uh, academic. <laughs> um, it's, uh, my Danny P. Anderson, I think, is my Twitter handle. <laughs> you don't know um, that. <laughs> rainbow face and stuff. Um, and then um, uh, Sectarian Review um, also has a Twitter handle at Sectarian Review. Um, there's a Facebook page for that. Um, and what is, oh, the website, uh, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that is even marginally interesting about me will be on one of those <laughs> Danny's show is linked in the show notes to this very episode. And Hannah? You can find me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. I'm tweeting about something probably not relevant to anything. <laughs> <laughs> And you can, as always, follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my personal blog at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vox Popcast, or on the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com. If you are enjoying the show, then subscribe to it. I don't know how you're listening to it if you haven't subscribed yet. Maybe somebody just sent it to you. I don't know. But subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor and leave us a five-star review on iTunes, you know, and write something to us. Don't just give us five stars. I mean, do give us five stars. But then also write us something so that we, you know, have something to read and make us feel good about ourselves and all warm and fuzzy. And and it shows everybody else that you have excellent taste by liking this show for reasons. Um, But it also helps other people find the show through magical iTunes algorithms that nobody understands. And it makes us more popular. And we will thank you on the air. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically as it pales us out. I'd like to thank both Hannah and Danny for joining me once again. And I'd like to thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. But definitely a no on the rap musical. I mean, if you really... My name is Kierkegaard and my writing is impeccable. Check out my teleological suspension of the ethical. No. No, right? (laughs) No, I felt like a no when I was doing it.